Global Dispatches. This is your host, Mark Leon Goldberg. My guest today is Ambassador Susan Jacob. She is the Special Advisor for Children's Issues at the Department of State and has the honor of being the first sitting U.S. government official to be a guest on this podcast. We have a great conversation. We kick off with a discussion about what she does. Her office is relatively new. It was created by Hillary Clinton while she was Secretary of State to focus on issues related to intercountry adoptions and intercountry custody battles. She discusses how the State Department is involved in those issues and also discusses how these family issues sometimes rise to the level of high diplomacy and international relations. We have a great conversation about her life and career. Ambassador Jacobs was among the very first married women to enter the U.S. Foreign Service. For a long time, there was a ban on married women entering the U.S. Foreign Service, but Ambassador Jacobs helped break that ban and set new policy. And Ambassador Jacobs served as U.S. Ambassador to Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands, and Vanuatu. And so we have a pretty interesting conversation at the end of this interview about how, when you are an ambassador to countries that are not top tier or even secondary or tertiary tier U.S. foreign policy interests, how you have a bit more leeway to get to set policy yourself and how she did that. So here's Susan Jacobs, the Special Advisor on Children's Issues at the United States Department of State. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, there are two Hague conventions that the... um the Bureau of Consular Affairs is responsible for. It's the Convention on Intercountry Adoptions and the Convention on International Parental Child Abduction. And these are big issues for the department. I think the Secretary always had an interest in children and their welfare. And she learned when she was in the Congress that this is important to a lot of members of Congress. And as secretary, she wanted to raise the profile of these issues within the department. And she did me the great honor of asking me to be the special advisor. So what does the Hague Convention say about those two issues? So I guess it, what is it probably established like a rules of the road and how to deal with international that, adoptions? Yes, it sets up um, a system of processes to ensure that to the best ability of the signatory countries, the adoptions are ethical and transparent and in the best interest of the child, the birth family, and the adopting family. So what does like an unethical practice look like? Like why is there a need for this? Okay, so so just like, what does that even mean in in practice? It means it means that you don't know how a child came into care, you don't know anything about the child's background, you don't know if the parents have really consented to a child leaving its own country permanently. 
So it's all the things that would make you question whether a child is an orphan and whether there has been a relinquishment of that child to be adopted. And the convention attempts to overcome all those hurdles. So one of the things one of the things that I do and I travel a lot is to meet with foreign government officials and to talk to them about what a good child protection system looks like. If you're if you're going to do adoptions and children are being put in orphanages, they need to be protected. And it it doesn't have to be a fancy system. I mean, you don't need a computer and, you know, great broadband internet to do this. What you need is a, a notebook and a pen, and you write down everything you can about a child when it comes to the orphanage. Mm-hmm. And then it would be good if you tracked the child's progress when it had its vaccinations, you know, who came to visit, all the things that would give a child a sense of him or herself. Um, can I ask, like, why, from a, a parent's perspective, um, from an adopting parent's perspective, like, what's the incentive to want to adopt a child from abroad as opposed to the United States? Is there, like, uh, a, 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 is it a demand, supply and demand issue that, that uh, compels parents to, to go abroad? Like, why, like, why is there even this sort of need for, for like, an office like yours in, in that respect? I, I think, you know, adoption... Foreign adoption into the United States really started in the 50s in Korea. And I I think it was seeing children who people thought didn't have parents, didn't have a family, didn't have permanency, and wanted to help. And I I think it spread from there. I think that it also, I mean, I, it's, it's, it's hard, it's hard to know. I mean, some people say it's because they, don't want to have to deal with a birth family in the United States. And most children now, there are no orphanages, you know, in the United States anymore. So children are placed in care. They're placed in foster care. And I think that parents are looking, or at least they were, they wanted um, a baby. And you could get a baby overseas. The face of intercountry adoption has changed a lot more in the last few years, and now the children are older, there are sibling groups, they might have a special need, and it's it's very different. And, you know, so the numbers, there's no doubt that the numbers have dropped, and there are a lot of factors that contribute to that, but one of them could be that the face of adoption has changed. Um, what countries um, uh, these days account for most of the intercountry adoptions uh, from American parents? China, Ethiopia, uh, Russia did account for a lot of children uh, being adopted into the United States, but we don't do, they stopped doing adoptions with us. And then there, there are some from other African countries. We were doing a lot of adoptions from Congo, um, just, you know, and then many from, you know, like smaller numbers from a lot of other countries. But the big sending countries for a while were China, Ethiopia, Korea, Vietnam, Guatemala, 
Korea has um, made a, a governmental decision to reduce the number of adoptions that it does every year. Um, we only just started doing adoptions with Vietnam again. Um, well, that's Guatemala, interesting to me. I mean, when does yeah. this issue of adoptions become an issue of international relations, right? right? Like, on one level, this is just like a, when they a personal thing. doing them with us. So I think part of it is when is when So Russia for example, right? Didn't Russia stop doing it yep. in the midst of they deteriorating rate relations with the United States recently? So it's really just and a matter of when they when when what they just stop? Well, this is what happened. We we had been doing adoptions with Russia for many many years and about 60,000 children were adopted from Russia by American families. Then there were, remember when that little boy was sent back to Russia with a tag on his shirt saying, I can't take care of him anymore, you deal with him? No, tell that story. I'm not familiar. Oh, well, that's, this happened in about 2010, I think. Um, there was a, a mother in Tennessee who had adopted a, a, a child who was somewhat older. He apparently, in her view, had a lot of Issues that she she just couldn't deal with anymore, and she was fed up, and she put him on a plane back to Russia, with a suitcase and a and a note pinned to her shirt saying she couldn't take care of him anymore, and the Russians were furious, and I and I understand that, and so they said if we wanted to continue doing adoptions with them, we were going to have to have a bilateral agreement. So we spent two years negotiating a bilateral agreement with the Russians, and we were starting to do a number of adoptions with them. And then the Congress passed the Magnitsky Law, which put visa restrictions on any number of Russians who were believed to be human rights abusers. And in retaliation, the Russians stopped doing adoptions with us. So that, that And was they said... Yeah, and they said it was because of a number of cases, but it was really because they were annoyed and um, they were they not anno they were furious with us, and so they um, abrogated. They gave us a year's notice, and then the treaty was over, and so there were approximately 400 children in Russia who had met their soon what they thought would be their American parents and the adoptions were not allowed to go through. Um, you said the other uh, issue that your office works on is the abduction of, of children across, uh, I guess, borders. Um, what's like the typical, yes, exactly. uh, is there like a typical story of, of how this happens or can you describe like one or two cases of, of that you work on? Here's the story. Two pe I mean, in, it's a smaller world now, so people meet, they meet when they're going to university, they meet when they're working for the same company, they meet when they're traveling, and they fall in love, and they have a baby, and then they forgot why they fell in love, and they start fighting, and one of them decides, I know how to punish the other, I'm going to take the kid and leave, because he or she is a terrible parent, I hate her, you know. It's not who I married. It's not what I want anymore. And they go to another country. And so there, there are criminal laws in the United States against kidnapping even your own child. But um, the Hague Convention provides a civil remedy that I think many people find more palatable. 
And so we joined that convention in 1988. And we work with other central authorities. There's, again, you know, like a whole process for doing, for making the case. And then um, the, the object is to have a hearing that determines where a custody hearing will be held. So if a child is abducted, let's say, from England to the United States, the first thing that would happen is there would be a court hearing in the United States to determine where the child was living when he or she was abducted. And if it's determined that the child was living in England, then the child should be returned to England for a court hearing about custody. Um, And so basically, it seems to me it's a pretty simple convention but um, and again, like when a lot of do these issues um, rise to the level of international relations or have any sort of profound impact on bilateral relations between the U.S. and, and another country? Or does it ever come to well, that? Let me, let me use the example of Japan. There were many cases of um, Japanese women who married American men came to live in the United States and for one reason or another, the marriages fell apart and the mothers went to Japan with their children. They, the, the fathers, the left-behind parents, were able to get a lot of members of Congress interested in their cases. And at the time, Japan was not a member of the Hague Convention. And so we had very limited diplomatic tools that we could use to encourage Japan to have those hearings, and plus there are many, many different laws, and it's a different culture, and so it was, it was very difficult. But the Congress became very interested in this, and that put um, needed pressure on us to do more, and we worked carefully with the Japanese, with other like-minded countries, and Japan has joined the convention now. So, and, you know, in every, in every um, bilateral meeting that we had with Japan from the president on down, this was one of the talking points, that I mean, Japan this, should join yeah. the convention, that, that children should, should be returned, that, it, it, you know, abduction is harmful to the child, to the parents, to society. This isn't the way to resolve differences. And so while there were people that wanted to take very extreme actions against Japan, I think that using diplomacy, even though it's not as fast as people want it to be, was very successful in the end. This is really interesting to me. I mean, it's like and, a, an area of international relations that not that's not often uh, explored uh, too, too deeply. So this is, this is just super interesting to me. I'm curious to learn how you came to this position. Uh, you said that Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, appointed you to this position when it was created in 2010. Um, like, How did she come to pick you for this job? This, this is a, actually this is a great story. When I was the Council General at our embassy in Bucharest, um, then First Lady Hillary Clinton came to visit. And we had, we were, there were a lot of So in like the ni- late 90s or mid 90s? Yeah. 19, she came in 1995. Mm-hmm. And I was um, given the honor of being her control. 
I was in charge of her visit. I was in charge of planning it, setting up all the meetings, making sure, you know, of all the logistics and everything else, and it was really um, a great honor. And and I got to ride with her on a couple of occasions, and I had visited a lot of orphanages, and they were horrible, to be perfectly honest. There was no way to raise a child, and it really informed a lot of the other things that I did afterwards in the Foreign Service. And so she remembered, I guess, I mean, she remembers everything. She's like the most amazing woman. And she remembered this, and when she decided to create the position, she asked me to do it. So you and Hillary Clinton visited a Romanian orphanage in like the and mid-1990s. And we visited an, a, a hospital for mm-hmm. AIDS children, and uh, it, was, it was a great visit. She, she did a lot of really good things for us in only a couple of days. That's fascinating. And like the, around that time period, my mom actually was a... Um, physical therapist working on uh, specializing in like infants and, and newborns and with uh, oh, handicaps and she was working and she worked in one of those orphanages for a while um, and like kind of sort of trained the in, nurses in there. Romania yeah and in Romania in the mid 1990s oh my god um, I bet I bet she knew a friend of mine it could you be. have to ask her if she knew if she knew Elizabeth Blair okay well she listens to these so mom if you're out there <laughs> if you listen mom yes. if you're listening because Liz, Liz was um, the head of, she had some high job at um, Baylor. And she was asked by the Romanian government to come to Bucharest and set up a nursing program. Because they, did, they didn't have, it, the nurses there were not like nurses here where they have lots of training and huge, you know, capabilities but they were just used to, you know, like empty bedpans and change the sheets. And she set up a whole nursing program. And one of the things that um, the First Lady did was to really give that program a boost and explain to the public, you know, from somebody that they really respected and was famous, why this was so important. And And it was just great. Um, and, you but know, I, at that time, like, that. as you said, I mean, the, the, the conditions, I mean, at least as she described them and, and you know, has been documented were pretty horrendous um, in, in sort of the orphanages and post-communist, immediate post-communist Romania. Yep. It was terrible. Um, they were so, dirty. The kids were yeah. stained to their beds. Yeah. I, I mean, it made that's you cry. That, yeah. Um, so where uh, I'm curious to know how you got into the Foreign Service. Uh, where are you from? Uh, how did you get into this line of work? In, I'm from in, Detroit. You sound like you're I'm from, from Detroit. Detroit. Yep. Yeah. Um, I graduated from the University of Michigan and then I went to Georgetown Law School. But while but in what made you want to take year, the, uh, at, the Foreign Service exam? Oh no no no! Wait wait wait! <laughs> okay. When when this was this was a long time ago, and after I when I was in my last year at Michigan, I met my husband, and he was going into the foreign service, and we got married. I left law school, and at that time, a married woman could not be a foreign service officer. And that all changed, I think, in 1972. They changed the regulations, 
and I took the exam in 1974, in 1973, and I came in in 1974. That's insane to me. I mean, you're not the first person I know. Isn't I've it interviewed insane? Um, <laughs> who, who's, who've mentioned, who's, who's actually has mentioned this. Um, so you wanted to take it, but you were married, so you couldn't. And the uh, well, law was amended was, in the early first, 70s. I was, I was then like, I, I, I wanted um, something meaningful to do. I mean, my grandmother had always been after me to be a teacher, you know, like, what are you going to do? Why are you wasting your father's money majoring in political science? Um, but I didn't actually listen to her. But then, you know, so you're overseas and you want something to do besides, um, you know, like join a woman's club. And so I, I had some jobs and I took Greek lessons when we were in Greece. And then when they... And then I had a couple babies, and then they changed the rules. And so I don't know what they thought was going to happen, but what happened in the Foreign Service was all these really bright wives took the exam and passed the exam, and then they they had a lot of tandem, we were called tandem couples. So there's that's so fascinating. So there's a basically like a generation of women who were married to foreign of service officers age. who became yeah who, who became <laughs> foreign service officers themselves when the restriction was lifted yes uh, um so how i guess what was your first family posting then where, where did you first end up we first we were in athens and we were there for about a year and a half and then we went to cyprus and our daughter was born on cyprus so and then we I spent a lot of time being pregnant on Cyprus, but it was it was great. Um, you know, I had some jobs. I started a day camp for the American kids, and then we came back to the States, and I had my second child, and then we went to Caracas for four years, and Caracas was my first posting. I took the exam there, and I came into the Foreign Service when now, we were in Caracas. Were you doing like typical entry-level foreign service stuff like stamping passports, rejecting visas, that sort of thing? We like to call them adjudicating visas. Oh, pardon me. Because <laughs> I did that. We, I, I was really lucky in Caracas because I got to do every counselor job. So I adjudicated visas. I helped American citizens, um, did welfare and whereabouts visits where you're looking for somebody and getting them to call their mom because, you know, they've been uh, remiss in taking care of that, um, issuing passports, uh, reports of birth, investigating fraud. So it was uh, really a very, very interesting job. And after that, I came back to the States and I worked in the visa office on policy issues as an assistant to the deputy assistant secretary of state. And About what year I, was that? That was in the late seventies. So, what are the, what were like the big uh, visa policy issues in the late seventies that you were trying to deal with? Was we the we visa waiver the, program the, in pro? Yeah, on the we were working on the beginnings of the visa waiver program. Um, just general. It's, it's hard to remember all of that. <laughs> it's been a long time. Well, when did the Just, visa waiver you know, program start? Working on fraud start? issues. Hmm? 
when did the Not, visa waiver program start? I mean, this is the, a policy that basically says if you're if you're a country that you're in uh, un, that's uh, under the visa waiver program, your citizens don't need a visa; they just need a passport to come into the. Well, United they States. need they need to apply online and get a clearance. Mm-hmm. But they don't they, need a they proper do have visa. To do that. But they don't need a proper visa. They they have a clearance that's in the system. I'm going to have to check. I can't exactly remember the year. I remember, I remember complaints that certain countries weren't in it, and you know. Well, that, those persist to this day. From, from from Congress, and it's like change the law if you don't like the way the yeah. law is. <laughs> There's another way to do it. But um, I also worked in international organization affairs, and worked worked there during the first Gulf War. Mm-hmm. And then I worked in when what Ambassador affair. Pickering was he was he's been on this show before he was the he the was US in New York yeah, he, was he was in New York and and John Bolton was the assistant secretary uh huh no and it was what, great and I, I can imagine they got along yeah. famously absolutely <laughs> well there's I mean it's actually something I'd love to uh, speak with you about um, there is you know I've been I, I write about the UN you know on a daily basis pretty much and one thing that is persistent uh, seemingly across administrations is and I, I'd love to get your opinion on this is a bureaucratic tension that seems to exist between the um, U.S. permanent mission in New York, the U.N. ambassador, and the State Department's Office of International Organization Affairs. Um, do you like? Could you testify to this? Um, to this? To this tension and I why can it exists? Confirm it. Yeah. Like what? It's what? Where does it derive true. from? I think it derives from the fact that we have an ambassador at the United Nations who has a staff that is separate from the State Department staff working on those issues here in Washington. And it requires a lot of coordination. But I, and I think that part of the tension is that things are moving very quickly at the UN and you have to make decisions. If they call a meeting of the Security Council, you can't wait five hours for a clearance from the department. You've got to decide and you've got to speak about it. And I think that if you have two very strong personalities, one is our ambassador, to the UN and the other is the Assistant Secretary for International Organization Affairs, there, there are going to be tensions. Especially because especially- it seems like on one hand, the, you know, the UN ambassador is like a cabinet level. Um, exactly. In most times, but still sort of has to report through an Assistant Secretary, a, a sub-cabinet level. And that seems just like a, 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 you know, bureaucratically not the most far-sighted way of doing right. business. I mean, so on the one hand, he's going to a cabinet meeting where he he or she can speak. And on the other hand, you know, you've got this um, bureaucracy here in the department that you have to work through. And I, I think it does create a lot of tension. Um, okay, so uh, moving along. Um, so when yeah. uh, did you uh, go overseas next? Now, my understanding is that you, you rose to the rank of ambassador. Is that right? I was. I was ambassador to... Papua New Guinea, the Solomon Islands, and Vanuatu from 2000 to 2003. Um, and, I mean, those that area, I mean, only comes up on kind of on my radar in relation to issues of climate change, right? right? They are considered the frontline states of rising sea levels and, um, you know, and, and, you know, all the, the 
sort of negative consequences of climate change, they're the ones to experience it first. Um, back in certainly, yeah. Back in two thousand, was this the case? They, these are countries with um, not a lot of infrastructure capacity. And so, um, for example, when I lived in Papua New Guinea, there were not very many paved roads. You could drive maybe 20 miles outside of Port Moresby on a paved road. And then it was dirt roads. And the other, the other main towns also had, you know, not too many roads, so people got around by airplanes. There were lots of flights everywhere. They were worried about it, but they... What what I found is that people didn't really talk to each other. So as an embassy, we had to decide what we wanted to focus on. And and one of the things was the environment. And what we were able to do was to identify all the different groups in the country and get them to meetings where they could talk to each other and air some of these problems. What were, and, like, and that was what were these meetings like? For us. They were, and what they were, were like fascinating. the issues? <laughs> I mean, everybody everybody has opinions. And it was great to have them in the same room so that they could con- make these make these connections within their own country. They hadn't been doing that. And so it was in it was incredibly helpful and and it was good for us. And and you know, you we had um we were in the enviable position there of not being the big dog that was telling everybody what to do. Well, that's Australia, We didn't right? have a big aid program. We just did these small things that, that could be useful. The, the British High Commissioner and I also started um, a group to talk more about domestic violence, which was endemic in the country. And that is still going strong. And we also noticed at our embassy that there was one woman parliamentarian, which was crazy. And so we started having meetings and getting women leaders to talk to each other. It didn't always have the desired result. Instead of like competing for different seats, a number of them competed for the same seat in the parliament. And (laughs) that didn't work out exactly the way I wanted it to. But the idea was a good idea to get them talking, to provide um, a space where they could have these conversations without men, without, you know, fear of um, being criticized or told to be quiet because they were women. So I think it's uh, we, fair to say, and this I mean no, uh, nothing sort of pejorative about this, but um, that Papua New Guinea and Vanuatu are not big, you know, U.S. policy interests, right? They're, they're not even probably tertiary policy interests. And, so. It's, Does that mean it's, that it's you that. as ambassador have a bit more freedom of movement to like create your own U.S. policy to these countries? Like you don't have to go through kind of the layers of approval because no one really cares? Yes. <laughs> it did. It, 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 was the, it was great. I mean, you have to figure out um, where you, how, to, how to make a difference in those countries. And so we had we had lots of ideas, and you know you it you could implement them. I mean, we got some small grants, so we helped start 
a woman's program on a radio network in the Solomons. We did the same thing in Vanuatu. I mean, you can, if you, if you husband your money carefully and you have the right people in the room, you, you can get a lot done. Can you uh, talk a bit about... You can give a speech on rural health, which you know nothing about, but thank God for Google. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So how many times did you visit Vuanatu? I mean, this, again, is a country that um, actually comes up like a lot in discussions around the UN because of climate change. I think even Ban Ki-moon visited the country uh, and sort of tells a story about having to sleep in his hotel with a life jacket for fear that a, a big wave might, might oh, come and sweep I them away. Oh, I don't believe that. Not there. Maybe I'm mixing Maybe countries. Kiribati. Maybe it was Kiribati. Kiribati, yes. It was Kiribati. That is that is true. <laughs> Not Vanuatu. Uh-huh. Yes. It's Kiribati. Not in Vanuatu. <laughs> Kiribati. Now, they, did, they, wouldn't, did, they wouldn't build a hotel so close to the water. <laughs> Um, did your I visited about about three times a year. Okay. Did your posting include but, but other officers from the embassy also visited? Uh huh. Okay. Um, did I your, mean, there did, was a flight that you could go yeah. Port Moresby, Honiara, and the Solomons, and then on to Port Villa in in Vanuatu, or you could go through Australia, which was actually fun. Um, so you uh, were there for three years. Where did you go after 2003? I came back to the Department of State, and I haven't been overseas since then. What was your... What so did you actually, I, I retired, and then Secretary Clinton brought me out of retirement to do this job. Oh, okay. When did you end up retiring? In 2006. Okay. Um, and so... I guess, did you have a sense that when um, Hillary Clinton became Secretary of State that things might be sort of dramatically different? I mean, never in my you know re- memory could I think of a Secretary of State being so politically powerful. Um, you know, someone, you know, who was, you know, you could rightly assume that she was sort of a president-in-waiting, uh, or at least a presidential candidate-in-waiting. Um, did that, like, affect the direction or policy decisions that came across your desk or, or in the de- department more broadly? I, I don't think so. I think that, that she was um, not focused on future jobs, but I think she was very focused on what she could accomplish as Secretary of State. And she was incredibly popular here because she consulted widely. She was um, approachable. She knew everything you could i mean if you asked her to do events she would do them she did three events for us and she was fabulous i mean she just has a way of of being with people that um shows how intelligent she is but also how compassionate and it was um it was great having her here which secretary? She of never states? looked like she was like not paying attention to us and looking for the next thing. She always looked like she was focused on what she was doing. What secretaries of state that you've worked uh, with or or served under have not had that those qualities? Have been maybe more difficult from a staffing perspective. I, I think they've 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 all been great. Everybody has a different style. Colin Powell 
was another one who really cared about the people that worked in the building. Um, you know, but everybody. I for the record, I didn't think I was going to get you to answer that question. I just thought I'd try. I know, <laughs> but I pivoted and I gave you an answer. There you go. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, well, Ambassador, this was uh, very interesting. Thank you so much. I mean, it was, as I said at the outset, that this the issue of, of adoptions and international uh, sort of abductions of, of children is not something that I think often in terms of, of sort of high diplomacy or international relations. So it was refreshing to hear your perspective on, on this issue. So again, thank you so much. You're very, very welcome. Thanks. Take care. All right. Well, thanks for listening. And if you're new to the podcast, you can find a trove of these long form interviews in our archives and it's all free. Subscribe on iTunes. You can download the app via globaldispatchespodcast.com and send me an email via globaldispatchespodcast.com if you have any suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. Thanks. Bye.